Hi there, Dunker Punks. Emmett Wachowski Eldred here. Before we start today's show, I just want to mention that the Dunker Punks podcast is in search of an intern to help us produce the show, contribute audio content, tell awesome stories, and help us develop to reach more people. If you're a young adult who's interested, we want to hear from you. If you know someone who is a young adult who may be interested, we want to hear from them. It's a great experience, it's a lot of fun, and yes, it's paid. So contact us at dpp at arlingtoncob to learn more or to apply. All right, I know that by now you're craving some Dunker Punk music by Jacob Krauss. Before we get there, I just want to pose a question to consider while you're listening. What is your journey? again from Nolan McBride. Nolan is a student at Manchester University in Indiana, and he's a member of the Church of the Brethren. But Nolan recently spent the last year living and studying in the United Kingdom, where he had the chance to nourish and expand his interest in high church traditions like the Anglican Church, which he finds deeply resonant with his own spirituality. In this episode, Nolan shares about two journeys that were important to him during his time across the pond. These journeys overlap with one another in important ways, and they parallel one another as they unfold. One journey is physical, literally a pilgrimage that tests Nolan's endurance and strength as he treks across the British countryside, 20 miles a day throughout Holy Week. But the giant life-size cross that he's lugging reminds us that it's the religious and spiritual significance, not the sweat, not the aching legs, not the exertion that leaves him changed. And that brings us to Nolan's second journey 
in which he describes the process of finding a second spiritual home while grappling with where that leaves him with the first home that he is about to return to. What moved me when I first listened to Nolan tell his story is the clear passion that comes through, the genuine feeling of inspiration and meaning that he communicates while he experiences it, and the remarkable harmony he describes between the faith tradition he loves as his home and upbringing and the faith tradition he's come to love through study and experience. It's not just a harrowing journey, it's a holy one. And Nolan invites us along as he processes what it means for his own faith identity and practice. Together, we pilgrimage through England, we see the humble waters of Camp Mac in Indiana, enter through the regal, towering doors of one of the grandest cathedrals in Europe, and we even make a pit stop in Hogwarts. Nolan? Hi, Dunker Punks. Nolan again. As of when I recorded this, I've just recently returned from my year studying abroad in Cheltenham, and I wanted to share a couple more of my experiences in England with you all. These, especially the second, build on what I said in my last episode on finding a spiritual home in a very different, but in some ways very similar, Christian community. I hope you enjoy. Firstly, this Holy Week, I joined the Oxford leg of the Student Cross Pilgrimage to Walsingham, England's Nazareth, where tradition claims the Virgin Mary appeared to an Anglo-Saxon noblewoman and tasked her to build a replica of the site of the Annunciation, the house where Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her that she would be the mother of Jesus. The original shrine and priory, or monastery, were suppressed and destroyed during the Reformation, but in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, both Catholics and Anglicans revived the tradition. The Catholics refurbished the Slipper Chapel, the second-to-last stop of the original pilgrimage route, where pilgrims would remove their shoes and walk barefoot to the shrine, and built the Catholic shrine around it. The Anglicans built a new holy house and shrine next to the ruins of the original. Student Cross started in 1948 meaning I joined the 70th anniversary group, and it began as a one-off group of Catholics carrying a wooden cross to the shrine in prayer and reparation for the sins of World War II. It has grown into an ecumenical, though admittedly Catholic and high church Anglican-leading, pilgrimage of 11 different legs, each starting from a different place and converging on Walsingham Good Friday, carrying their own cross. They joined together to celebrate Good Friday Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. The leg I joined, Oxford, starts early in the morning Saturday before Palm Sunday, after everyone arrives and meets at the Catholic chaplaincy in Oxford, across from Christ Church College. While called Student Cross, walkers come from a variety of ages, with some having walked the pilgrimage for decades or even their entire lives. They also came from a variety of different backgrounds. One walker was from Hong Kong. Another walker who walked with us earlier in the week but had to return home due to family emergencies, is from Germany, and one man on the walk had moved to the UK from Greece in the 70s. Most of the group was Catholic, though aside from me, we did have a few Protestants, mainly from Anglican and Methodist backgrounds. I hadn't met anyone before the pilgrimage, as I had found out about it online. Aside from walkers, we had a Jesuit priest and an Anglican priest as chaplains, though the Anglican priest had to go back to his parish in Oxford halfway through the week. Two other Jesuits joined the pilgrimage. 
a novice who had lived in the United States before returning to the UK to join the Society of Jesus, and an Irish priest who works in the Jesuit archives in Rome, but was just finishing a sabbatical in Oxford. Apparently, numbers were down a bit this year, and many of the walkers were returners. We journeyed to Walsingham together, carrying a life-sized cross three at a time. We were legally classified as a slow-moving vehicle, and had three walkers assigned as traffics at all times to watch for vehicles and direct the group. Along the way, we rested at churches and village halls, where parishioners served us tea and cakes as well as other snacks. Most of these were historic Anglican churches, with a couple of beautiful small parishes being personal highlights for me. I was particularly excited when I found a medieval seven-sacrament font, one of 29 left in England, and painted rude screed decorated with saints at All Saints Marsham. Another memorable stop was a boarding school run by the nuns of the Convent of Jesus and Mary, who provided delicious sandwiches and cakes. They had a beautiful, small, now-redundant Anglican church just outside their school, and let us use their chapel for my station. Along the way, members of the pilgrimage were invited to give short reflections called stations on whatever they felt called to share. We would spend the next half an hour in silent reflection, ending with a hymn. Mine was on how I had grown in my relationship with God through my experience in the Anglican Church, along the same lines as my last Dunker Punks podcast. We did manage to visit three cathedrals, St. Edmundsbury's Anglican Cathedral and both the Catholic and Anglican Cathedrals in Norwich, though we did not have much time to look around any of them. In the Anglican Cathedral in Norwich, we basically ran through just before their chrism service started Monday, Thursday. I did feel a little guilty as I did not walk the whole way of the route, making use of the support car as I needed it due to back issues that I have and having back pain flare up. Carrying the cross wasn't exactly difficult, but it was very tiring, especially when we only had a few people walking. Along the way, we got to know each other, sang both sacred and secular songs, and bonded as a group. I was asked several times to explain who the brethren are, though I think I probably confused some of the other walkers with my strange mix of brethren and high church Anglican spirituality. Like many people in the UK, when I described my hometown, they were very interested in the Amish and asked how the brethren were connected to them. One advantage of being in a group with a lot of Catholics is that several of them had actually heard of or even visited Notre Dame, so I didn't have to describe my hometown in relation to how far we were from Chicago. We also worshiped together, saying morning and evening prayer together in both the Catholic and Anglican forms, and attended Catholic Mass and Anglican Eucharists several times. The first Saturday and Sunday were particularly full of Masses, as we had a Mass before we left the Catholic chaplaincy, a Palm Sunday Vigil Mass that night, a 1662-ish, because the chaplain wasn't familiar with the liturgy and didn't know he was presiding until just before the services started, combined with a few alterations by the parish to the liturgy, Book of Common Prayer, Eucharist, Palm Sunday. I would say that, at least on the Oxford leg, there were noticeably more Catholic Masses than Anglican Eucharists. This does make sense, as the majority of the group was Catholic, and the Anglican chaplain had to leave before we reached Walsingham. But it was difficult for me, as the Catholic Church does not allow non-Catholics to receive communion. I've grown into a much deeper appreciation for the Eucharist than I never knew was possible since I started attending St. Mary's and other Anglican Church services. 
was very hard seeing Jesus on the altar, knowing I couldn't receive him in the bread and wine. I tried to commune with God spiritually during these moments. Given this, I was very appreciative that both Catholic and Anglican communion were available at the Good Friday service. Parishioners aided us along the way, mostly providing snacks and drinks at churches along the route. Though the parishioners of St. Henry Morse in Dis went above and beyond the call of duty, hosting us in their houses for the night Tuesday. This was the first opportunity we had had since the start of the pilgrimage to shower and have a bath. The couple that hosted me were particularly friendly, providing a delicious meal and letting us wash some clothes. I accidentally left some clothes behind when we left, and they had no problem sending them to me. One pub we were supposed to stop in for lunch didn't open early for us like it was supposed to. The kind woman, the pub's former landlady who had served the lake before, let us use her bathroom and sit in her conservatory. She had an adorable baby. Towards the end of the walk, we started getting chronically late as people waited till the last moments to use the bathroom and were sluggish leaving. Our unplanned whirlwind tour of Norwich Cathedral did not help. One of our last stops on Friday was a woman in her 80s who met us at a bus stop with hot cross buns and walked with us to the village hall where we had lunch that day. Apparently, she's been doing this ever since Oxford Lake started in the 60s. It was amusing to watch people's reactions when we walked by them with a giant cross. My favorite were the people in a dinner sunroom when we walked past singing, We all live in a yellow submarine. In intro to the Hebrew Bible, my first year at Manchester, Justin Lasser made the point that the Seder meal and Passover celebrations are not just memorials of God's actions in the past, but through them participants enter into the events and are themselves mystically redeemed from slavery in Egypt. This image stuck with me this Holy Week as I experienced the full Triduum Monday, Thursday through Holy Saturday services for the first time. I'd shared a brother in love feast with my British friends the week before and found myself immersed in the Anglican and Catholic liturgy from the major points of Holy Week. We celebrated a Christian Seder with a local family Monday, Thursday the day before we arrived at Walsingham, about midday. I was slightly leery, as as far as I know, no one there was Jewish, and the service we used explicitly reinterpreted the meal through a Christian lens, but the group seemed to enjoy it. The couple hosting us was very friendly, and the food was very good. As one of the four youngest in the group, I played a small role in the service, asking about one of the symbolic foods placed on the table. We truly entered the Triduum that night with a Monday Thursday Mass at a local Catholic church. Our chaplain led, a tradition that apparently goes back half a century. As part of the service, the priests washed the feet of twelve people, six parishioners and six pilgrims. I volunteered to have my feet washed, keen to hold on to at least a little bit of the Brethren traditions for the love feast. Like the Cheltenham love feast, where only myself and the university's chaplain washed each other's feet. I was struck by how resistant people were to this practice. The priest had to scramble a little to come up with six pilgrims for the feet washing. I was particularly struck by the stripping of the altar after the service, when all the cloths and coverings were removed from the altar until the Easter vigil, and the removal of the Eucharist from the tabernacle to an altar of repose. As Catholicism and other high church traditions believe that the consecrated bread and wine literally become the flesh and blood of Jesus. A portion of that bread is stored in what is called a tabernacle, with a vigil light next to it signaling Christ's presence. On Monday, Thursday, at the end of Mass, this is emptied and left open.
the light extinguished. The sacrament is moved to an altar of repose, an altar somewhat hidden from the rest of the church. Ours was in the church's vestry. This represents Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Traditionally, a vigil is kept before the Eucharist at the altar of repose that night. I teared up when the Eucharist was removed from the tabernacle. When following and praying before the altar of repose, I had an intense feeling of being with Jesus at the garden. And when I left, I felt like one of the disciples who had fallen asleep and later abandoned him. I had abandoned my Lord. Good Friday, we arrived at the Slipper Chapel, the Catholic shrine. First-time pilgrims carried the cross through an icy cold ford barefoot. We were the last leg to arrive, apparently what usually happens as we have the most distance to travel. We all went for private prayer before the statue of Our Lady of Walsingham in the chapel, then had just enough time to sort ourselves out before we moved with everyone else to the massive Chapel of Reconciliation, where we were welcomed by the priest in charge of the shrine. After some general welcoming and introductions, each leg processed as a massive group down the holy mile into town carrying our crosses. We ended in front of the Catholic Church, where most of our services were held. We then had supper and a break before the Good Friday Liturgy. The Reproaches, a piece sung from the perspective of Jesus, as he recounts how God has saved his people in the past and asking what he has done that now they would turn on him and crucify him struck vividly in my mind. The high point of the service was the veneration of the cross and receiving the consecrated bread. No Mass or Eucharist can be said on Good Friday, so extra bread was consecrated during the Monday-Thursday services for that night. One of the large crosses was placed before the altar and used for the veneration. I do not know if it was another leg's cross or if it was one special for that purpose. It had been carried during the procession and gradually unveiled three times the first two before and after the procession, and the third during the service. We were invited to kneel before it and venerate it however we felt comfortable, but I followed the traditional practice and kissed it. The whole experience was deeply moving. Because communion had to be consecrated the night before, it was easy for both Catholic and Anglican Eucharists to be made available on either ends of the chancel. After venerating the cross, we either went to the right or left to receive the appropriate communion. This way we were all able to receive communion together, something I found deeply moving. Holy Saturday morning, an ecumenical service led by one of the legs is held at Walsingham's Methodist Church. This year's took the form of readers throughout the church taking on the roles of the disciples and the Virgin Mary, locking themselves in a room for safety after the crucifixion, preparing to say the traditional Jewish prayers for the dead, for Jesus. Each focused on a different story from Jesus' life and a different way of understanding his identity. We had some free time during the day, during which I visited the Priory ruins with Father Brian, the Irish priest from Rome, then made my way to the Orthodox Chapel and Anglican Shrine. The Orthodox presence in Walsingham is very small compared to the Catholic and Anglican ones, but is very beautiful and moving. A small shrine dedicated to the Theotokos, Mary's title as the God-bearer, can be found up a flight of stairs in the Anglican shrine, but a larger one dedicated to St. Seraphim can be found in a converted railway station, no longer used for services on a regular schedule after the congregation moved to a larger church nearby. It's a beautiful, quiet place to pray, somewhat secluded from the larger shrines and churches in town. The Anglican shrine was probably my favorite place to visit, 
and it struck me when I entered that some of its chapels were probably the closest I could get to seeing English churches at their height before the Reformation. It is definitely a modern building, but is built and decorated in a way that reminded me considerably of the remains I've seen of medieval churches, particularly in how some of the chapels are completely painted. The Shrine Church houses a new holy house and a statue of Our Lady of Walsingham. Saturday night, I was an acolyte for the first time since grade school for the Catholic Easter Vigil and carried the Paschal candle before its lighting. We started at the open-air altar in the Anglican Shrine. Then, once the fire and Paschal candle were lit, processed back to the Catholic Church. The service was over two hours long, and while I did zone out at a couple parts of it, there were many readings of familiar stories, and I got a little bit impatient during the homily or sermon. It was a joyful, exuberant experience. I got full-on drenched when the priest sprinkled us with newly blessed holy water as we renewed our baptismal vows, which was a bit of a shock after the light sprinkle I had gotten during the blessing of the palms on Palm Sunday, though probably appropriate for a dunker. I was told afterwards that not all Easter vigils are like that, something I figured with the series of songs with motions after the Mass officially ended. We celebrated with a Paschal party, during which each leg had to contribute a couple of performances early into the morning. My denominational light bulb jokes, which I had shared with Oxford Leg earlier that week, went over very well. Easter Sunday, we celebrated with an Anglican Eucharist at the Anglican Shrine, followed by the Holy Trot, a procession with our crosses, now decorated with flowers and greenery, through the Priory grounds, past the Anglican Parish Church, and ending at the Methodist Church. We ended with a final prayer in front of the Catholic Church, the same spot as we had ended the Good Friday procession. All that was left afterwards was lunch and last goodbyes before we all headed home. I'm very glad I traveled with Student Cross to Walsingham. I made new friends, had the opportunity to hike through the English countryside, and drew closer to God in new and familiar ways. I would highly recommend going on it if you ever have the chance, and I hope I'm able to walk it again someday. I will be searching out some of these services again in future Holy Weeks and Easters. I know I've brought a little bit of Walsingham back with me. Secondly, on May 12th, I was confirmed in the Church of England by Bishop Robert Springett, the Bishop of Tewkesbury, a suffragan or assistant bishop in the Diocese of Gloucester at Gloucester Cathedral. I had decided to be confirmed as I wanted to recognize the deeper relationship with God I've entered into over the past year and make a formal commitment to the Church of England and Anglican more widely, where I found a spiritual home. This growth has roots going back several years, such as the Spartan Awakening retreat I attended at St. Robert's Catholic Church in North Manchester last year, and possibly even in my emerging interest in high church traditions in high school. I began to consider it seriously during my spring semester this year, and made my final official decision at the veneration of the cross on Good Friday in Walsingham. When we returned from the pilgrimage, I emailed Simon, the head chaplain of the University of Gloucestershire and an ordained Church of England priest, to discuss it, and after a few meetings we arranged it, together with my friend Rose, who was also confirmed. This is not to say that I have left my membership in the Church of the Brethren. I made it very clear when initially discussing the possibility of confirmation with Simon that I would not be willing to do so if it meant I had to cease to be brethren. I now see myself as a member of both denominations, and since coming home especially, I'm trying to work out what that means for me in my faith life.
I asked Linda Concanon Hodge, one of the church wardens and people I felt most close to at St. Mary's, to be my confirmation sponsor. Linda was very touched, I asked her, and she, Francis, the other church warden, and two others from St. Mary's were at the service. She and Francis gave me a lift to the cathedral. Simon, Rachel, and Joe, chaplains from the University of Gloucestershire, were all there, as were several friends from university. Ian, the BCA rep for England, also made it. Linda and Francis were happy to be my surrogate family for the day, and Linda insisted on taking several pictures for my mother. Rose and I were initially slightly disappointed that the service was to be taken by the Bishop of Tewkesbury rather than Bishop Rachel Treweek, the Bishop of Gloucester, and the first female diocesan bishop in the Church of England. While it would have been cool to say I had been confirmed by her, as I got to know Bishop Robert a little bit better before and during the service, I came to like him and was very thankful that he confirmed me. Of course, sacrament is not about who performs it. We were to meet in the Lady Chapel of Gloucester Cathedral at 3.45 for the service to start at 4.30, but I was there about 20 minutes early. This gave me time to pray before the Blessed Sacrament, consecrated communion bread, as well as at St. Andrew's Chapel and a couple of the other chapels, and the high altar before the service started. The current building was built by the Normans after their invasion under William the Conqueror, though the community at Gloucester Cathedral is much older. Before the Reformation, it had been a Benedictine abbey. The site of the tomb of King Edward II, Henry VIII, spared it from destruction during the desolation of the monasteries by making it the cathedral of the newly created Diocese of Gloucester. Its cloisters were used in the filming of Harry Potter, particularly the troll scene in The Sorcerer's Stone and the writing on the wall scene in Chamber of Secrets. I can therefore say that I was confirmed in Hogwarts. The church's stained glass windows, especially the ones in the St. Thomas Chapel, were particularly beautiful that day. Because of how well-dressed I was, one woman thought I was staff and asked me where the bathroom was. <laughs> After we all met up in the Lady Chapel and I introduced Linda and Francis to Simon and Rose, the bishop led us to St. Thomas Chapel, where he led us through the service beforehand. They needed a reader for the first reading of the service, and I was asked to fill in. We then moved to the choir, spelled with a Q, where the service was held. We all sat in chairs next to the high altar, with our sponsors and families. Rachel prayed with me before the service, and Joe gave me a card. Linda commented on the fact that I'd been baptized in a lake at Camp Mac and was now being confirmed in a Norman cathedral, jokingly asking me where I was going to be married. When the service started, the cathedral choir processed in and took their places in the choir stalls. The first hymn, Be Thou My Vision, was a bit hazy as two different translations were being sung at the same time. It was nerve-wracking to read from the cathedral's lectern. The second reading was from the Gospel of John. A few people came late to the service. When we got to the part of the service where we remembered our baptisms and reconfirmed our baptismal vows, I remembered being dunked in Lake Wabi at Camp Mac in the service before it. I wished I could remember it a little bit more vividly. The Anglican baptismal vows are different than the promises I made at my baptism, but they generally convey the same point. Because they were different, and I believe longer than the ones I made at my baptism, I saw myself as making them for the first time. Though I had said them before, as part of the congregation at an Anglican baptism I'd attended, and at the Catholic Easter Vigil at Walsingham, the cathedral is apparently getting a new baptismal font, so we used a temporary one placed in front of the paschal candle. It was just a blue and white basin on a table. The bishop really enjoyed sprinkling everybody with water to remind them of their baptisms. 
He even tried to hit the choir, but I don't think the rosemary branch he was using was quite long enough to reach them, something he joked about. When we got to the actual confirmation section of the service, I almost felt like it had snuck up on me. It was kind of like, oh, we're already here. I made the promises, told the bishop my name, and received the anointing with chrism and laying on of hands. The bishop placed both his hands on my head, and Linda and Simon each had a hand on my shoulders. It was a powerful moment. Both Rose and Rachel told me afterwards that they could really feel the Holy Spirit moving in that moment. I'd especially felt God's presence in the preparation and moments leading up to the service. Like my baptism, confirmation for me was a recognition of how God had moved in my life and a way of making a formal commitment to God and the church. Honestly, there was a little part of me that was disappointed that I didn't fall flat on my face because of having some intense experience of God at the moment of my confirmation. It's not to say I didn't feel God's presence in the service. It wasn't the same as I've experienced it before. I'm not quite sure how to explain what I felt. I encountered God and the Holy Spirit in a new, deep way. And despite the vastly different liturgy, it seemed very brethren to me that the confirmation was an anointing and laying on of hands. From there, the service moved into the passing of the peace and the normal Eucharist liturgy. I was glad the Blessed Sacrament was part of the service, as I wasn't sure it would be. After all, I would say it's been the Anglican tradition that has deepened my devotion to and appreciation for the Eucharist over the past year and played no small role in my decision to be confirmed. The bishop presided, and communion was celebrated at the high altar. This means he was facing east, away from us, because the altar is set against a wall. We received communion at the altar rails. I'd hoped to attend a Eucharist at the cathedral this year, and this was my opportunity. I knelt on the south side between Simon and Linda, and was glad we were all able to receive together. At the end of the service, we processed out with the bishop after he gave us candles lit from the paschal candle, just like in an Anglican baptism. The processional cross used was donated to the cathedral after it had been used in the Queen's coronation. We then posed for many photographs, and Linda hunted down Bishop Robert, so he would sign an American and English Book of Common Prayer she gave me as confirmation gifts. I have a certificate to prove my confirmation. After the service, I was invited to a meal with Rose's family. The next Sunday, St. Mary celebrated with cake and sparkling white wine after the service. Father Nick snuck in a hug and congratulations during the opening procession of the service. Having spent the last month officially preparing for confirmation, it felt odd to not be doing so anymore for the next couple of weeks afterwards. I felt kind of weird returning to normal life afterwards similar to my experiences after National Youth Conference or Spartan Awakening. It was very much coming down from a mountaintop experience, and I felt out of sync with the everyday world for the next week or so. Since coming home, I'm seeking to integrate my newfound Anglicanism into my Brethren faith life. I am still attending Union Center and Manchester Church of the Brethren as my primary places of worship, but I'm currently also looking for an Episcopal the American version of the Church of England, parish, to worship with as well. My experiences in England this past year have changed me, helped me to see my life and my faith through a new lens. I hope what I've shared has challenged and encouraged you, Dunker Punks. I want to leave you with a challenge. Step out of your comfort zone and experience God in a new way. It doesn't have to be as radical as carrying a cross for 20 miles a day for a week 
or being confirmed in an entirely different denomination, but being open to finding God's presence in a new and different way. Maybe it's trying an entirely different style of worship than you're used to. Maybe it's opening the hymnal and singing a few hymns out of it that your congregation has never tried before. Maybe it's just being willing and open to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it is, see where God calls you through it. Talk to you again soon, and until next time, keep living out the radical love of the Jesus Movement. Bye! Nolan's storytelling feels special to me because it reminds me of a new and unexpected faith experience that has been significant in my life over the past year. I just finished working for a Quaker-based organization, and while I've always felt that I knew and respected and related to Quakerism as a member of one of the other three historic peace churches, it wasn't until I got to experience it up close, go on a real journey of discovery, that I came to respect and recognize how much I identify a second home there. Now I'll be honest, I'm not enthralled by high church traditions and spirituality like Nolan is. It's just not my cup of tea. But I don't really think that Nolan's story is about that. No, Nolan is speaking the language and the sound of joy, of coming to encounter God in a new way that God has been revealed. For Nolan, it's those Anglican traditions, those towering cathedrals, that deep spirituality, that sacred liturgy, the Eucharist, and you just can't help but root for a guy whose faith journey inspires him to take a peaceful, prayerful, sacred pilgrimage of discovery and devotion. I think that's why Nolan was able to pull me into his story, and I'm grateful to him for that. I liked also how on that strange journey, Nolan nonetheless recognized the echoes of his first spiritual home. How wonderful is God that Nolan could get to take part in what to him seemed like a good old-fashioned feet washing, just like at the Brethren churches he had first came to love. That whether you're being dunked in a humble lake in Indiana or spritzed in a magnificent cathedral in England, that God can be there right beside you. That's what helps me take heart for Nolan's challenge of stepping outside of my comfort zone and seeking to experience God in a new way. So tell me, how will you? The Dunker Punks podcast is produced by a team of contributors and editors from around the U.S. who are all on a blessed journey as part of the Jesus Movement. This episode was edited by Kevin Schatz, and it was produced by Suzanne Lay. Our music is by Jacob Krauss. I'm Emma Lukowski-Eldred, and our episode today was contributed by Nolan McBride. There's just one more person that I'm missing in these credits, and that person might be you. We are looking for an intern for the Dunker Punks podcast. Tell digital stories. Learn about audio editing. Help us promote and develop the show, and, yes, get paid to do it. Let us know if you're interested. Contact us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. Come on, if Nolan can carry a cross across England, you at least can submit an application. If you like this show, make sure to rate and review us on iTunes, and be sure to follow us on all social media at DunkerPunksPod. You can learn more at DunkerPunks.com or at arlingtoncob.org dpp. We're always looking for more content contributors, an intern, helpers, an intern, supporters, an intern, donors. Oh, and, and did I mention an intern? 
If you want to be involved, contact us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. Thank you. I just want to be me.